Hi, I'm Mark O'Connell, and you're listening to Far-Fetched, a podcast about my largely unpaid but mostly enjoyable career as a writer. Now, I'd like to point you in the direction of the June 12th, 2022 issue of the New York Times. There is an article in last Sunday's Times called Crop Circles Were Made by Supernatural Forces, named Doug and Dave. The subhead says, Intricate patterns carved in fields across England in the 1980s were a viral phenomenon long before the internet fed us such prankster curiosities daily. Do you sense a little hint of dismissal in that description? Yeah, I I do too. But what's interesting about this article is, way back when, in the late 1990s, about 10 years after uh, the events in this article uh, took place, I wrote a movie script about the aforementioned Doug and Dave, the supernatural forces that this guy seems to be uh, ridiculing. And uh, yeah, I wasn't going to tell this story till later in the podcast, but now that this story has appeared just just this week in the New York Times, I, I think I need to talk about it because it's a really interesting story. So back in the 1980s, cropper circ... So back in the 1980s, crop circles were appearing in farmers' fields all over southern England. Um, and it became an international craze. People were just trying to figure out how the hell these crop circles were being made. The more they tried to figure it out, the, the more complicated and elusive the crop circles became. Uh, if, if someone tried to make a case that, well, it was just you know some pranksters out having some fun, then suddenly the next day, this unbelievably complex and beautiful crop circle would appear that, that nobody, it would be very difficult to imagine anyone putting this together like on the fly overnight. So the crop circles became this really fun, weird international mystery for a while until these two old guys named Doug and Dave came forward, uh, approached a a newspaper or a magazine in in the UK and said, hey, mystery solved. We've been making all the crop circles. Now, it turns out the reason for this article appearing just this past week in the New York Times is that someone has just written a novel a fictionalized account of Doug and Dave's adventures making crop circles. The book was just uh, published just a couple of weeks ago in late May 2022. It sounds very much like the screenplay I wrote back in 1998, to be perfectly honest with you. So I'm kind of scratching my head here. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read a section from this article in the New York Times uh, and, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit more about this guy's novel, and then I'm going to tell you about my screenplay, and you can form your, your own conclusions from the information I'm, I'm about to present. So the Times article sets it up by talking about all the, the history of the crop circles appearing in the late 1990s, late 1980s, 1990s uh, throughout the UK, and eventually segues into talking about Doug and Dave. And here's where we pick up this article. 
In the case of crop circles, the article says, the most important contradictory evidence emerged on September 9, 1991, when the British newspaper Today ran a front-page story under the headline, quote, Men Who Conned the World, unquote, revealing that two mischievous friends from Southampton had secretly made more than 200 of the patterns over the previous decade. Doug Bauer, then 67, and his friend Dave Chorley, 62, admitted to a reporter, Graham Brow, that in the late 1970s they had begun using planks of wood with ropes attached to each end to stamp circles in crops by holding the ropes in their hands and pressing the planks underfoot. They had then watched with amusement as their anonymous antics eventually attracted media attention and began being copied by imitators around the world. Mr. Bauer and Mr. Chorley's exploits are the inspiration for The Perfect Golden Circle, a new novel by the British writer Benjamin Myers. Set in 1989, it follows two friends who roam the English summer nights creating increasingly complex crop patterns. Okay, so that's what the Times leads in with. And again, the Times article is not so much about the book as it is about recounting the history of crop circles. Uh, but I thought that was a nice segment to give you for starters. Now I'm going to read to you a synopsis of my script, the script I wrote 20 some years ago called Doug and Dave. Here you go. Doug and Dave by Mark O'Connell a comedy based on actual events. Welcome to the village of Avebury, England, a special place that was built inside an ancient circle of stone. It's like living inside Stonehenge, and where anyone you meet could have a special knack. Among the residents are two geezers named Doug and Dave, best friends with a mutual knack for drinking and painting, and who are currently battling a lack of inspiration in their work. When crop circles start to appear all over the district, Avebury is suddenly overrun with mystics, reporters, and curiosity seekers. Paranormal investigator Christopher Jones is determined to prove that there are otherworldly forces at work. But as the circles become grander and more complex, explanations are hard to come by. Doug and Dave follow along with interest, as the crop circle crowd has taken up residence in their local pub, The Barge. Boisterous Doug has designs on The Barge's lovely young barmaid Tilly, who happens to have a few knacks herself. She's intrigued, but she also develops a fancy for Christopher. Shy, quiet Dave, meanwhile, has no idea that his landlady, whose name he can never remember, has a desperate crush on him. Doug and Dave confess to making the circles, and they become overnight celebrities as the press sees upon their story. It's the only explanation for the circles that makes any sense, which infuriates the mystics and Christopher Jones. But not Tilly! who now believes that Doug and Dave made some of the circles, but not all. Christopher thinks she may be onto something until he reveals a secret weapon. If she doesn't spontaneously climax in the center of a circle, it can only be one of Doug's and Dave's. But if she does, it must be the real deal. Doug and Dave are basking in their folk hero status until Christopher announces that he possesses a video proving that Doug and Dave have been hoaxing a hoax. The world quickly turns on Doug and Dave, but when the video is proven to be a hoax as well, the two men are exonerated. But they're not so sure they want to be. Just the same, they can't resist an invitation to create a circle on live TV, just to thumb their noses at their critics. 
the boys pull out all the stops and create their grandest vision yet, and the world welcomes them back with open arms. The next day, Christopher takes Tilly to the circle and has her perform her test, but to both their astonishment, Tilly climaxes. Doug's and Dave's greatest circle ever is genuine. Christopher can't fathom what it means, but it's clear that his investigation is crashing, and his budding romance with Tilly is quite over. The next night at the barge, Tilly apologizes to Doug. She's experienced ridicule for her dowsing abilities, and she had no right to doubt Doug. Newly infatuated, Doug and Tilly take a stroll to see the very first circle Doug and Dave ever made, and Tilly reveals her secret weapon to Doug. She confesses to him that she faked her orgasm that morning in the made-for-TV circle to throw Christopher off, and Doug is smitten. To his astonishment, Tilly has a powerful orgasm in the circle, and it dawns on him that he and Dave have had a knack of their own right from the start. But why would their original circle affect Tilly and not the one they made for live TV? Because, Tilly explains, they made the original circle for all the right reasons and the TV circle for all the wrong ones. At the exact same time, Dave takes Mrs. Question Mark, his landlady, for a walk to see the newest circle. She reveals her name, but Dave doesn't hear. He's witnessing the actual creation of a new crop circle by glowing orange orbs. Now that they both know some greater power has been working through them all along, Doug and Dave withdraw from the spotlight again. Meeting at the barge one last time, they decide to see where their new collaboration with the unknown may lead them. The next morning, they've both vanished, but they've left behind their most stupendous circle yet. Both Tilly and Mrs. Question Mark are distraught that the boys have disappeared and left nothing behind. But Tilly has an idea and leads Mrs. Question Mark into the center of the circle, saying, Artists always sign their work, don't they? Now, I first became interested in the story of Doug and Dave when I read about them in a 1998 book, Colin Wilson's Alien Dawn, An Investigation into the Contact Experience. It's all about alien contact, right? So, but he talked a little at one point in the book about crop circles, and he told the story of Doug and Dave. And I thought it was a hilarious story. These two guys had actually hoaxed a hoax. They made people believe that they were responsible for something that was already hoaxed. And I just thought, I thought that was just such a funny basis for a story. I decided to write a script about it, never thinking, oh, I'm writing a script about real people. There are probably some legalities I should look into. Eventually, that was actually not a factor because Doug and Dave were already public figures, for one thing, and I was not, I was not uh, besmirching them. I was not denigrating them in any way in my script, so I decided not to worry about the fact that, well, at this point, only one of them was alive. I think Doug was the only one alive at the time I wrote the script. But that's the thing. When I was trying to research the script before I started it, I just kept running into brick wall after brick wall. There was very little written about these guys. Uh, This was very early internet, so it was hard to find anything at that point. And when I did finally find someone in the UK who was an active crop circle researcher, and yes, there are crop circle researchers. They call themselves cereologists after cereal because the crop circles appear in wheat fields, among other things. 
So I got a hold of this seriologist in the UK and asked him if, you know, there was any good source of information about Doug and Dave. And I got an email back from this guy and he was furious. He just said there is no way he would ever share that information. It turns out the hardcore seriologists absolutely cannot stand Doug and Dave because Doug and Dave have trivialized their work. You know, if, if these guys are, if these seriologists are out there trying to prove that crop circles are made by supernatural forces or by aliens or, or God knows what all, then they don't want these they don't want these two drinking buddies to just show up and say, hey, it was us and capture all the attention. So this guy actually wrote back to me and he literally told me that I could not trust anything that Doug or Dave told me because those would be words that came straight from the mouth of Satan. I swear to God, this guy told me that Doug and Dave were Satan. So I gave up on that line of research and just decided, well, I was just going to have to make it all up on my own, which I did, and it was very fun. And in fact, of all the scripts I've written, and I've written, you know, I, I don't even want to count how many scripts I've written over the course of my life, but of all of the scripts I have written, Doug and Dave came the easiest to me. At the time I was thinking about writing the script, my family and I were on a very, very long camping vacation. We were on the road for about three weeks. And I had a lot of windshield time. And I just kept thinking about the script and thinking about the story. And whole scenes would write themselves in my head as I was driving along the interstate. It was the most amazing experience as a writer I've ever had. I hope every writer has that experience at least one time in their lives. It was just incredible. By the time we got home from our vacation, it took me about 10 days to actually write the script because it was, it was all there in my head. All the pieces were already in my head. I just had to sit down at the word processor. That's what we called them then. I had to sit down at the word processor and put the pieces together. So that process took about 10 days. And then I sent the script to my agent who he had no idea what I was up to. So the script was a complete surprise to him. And he thought it was pretty good. So he decided to start sending it out to producers. And a funny thing happened when he started sending Doug and Dave out to producers. Producers would call him up. They'd call Jonathan up and say, hey, when am I going to meet your British writer? And Jonathan would pause and say, what, what, what British writer? I don't represent a British writer. And the producer would say, you know, the guy who wrote Doug and Dave, this O'Connell guy. And Jonathan would just burst out laughing and say, are you kidding? That dude's from Wisconsin. He had so much fun with that. I don't know how many times that happened, but to hear him tell it, it happened a lot. Everybody was calling him up asking to meet the, the British writer. So for a minute there, uh, I had a reputation in the film business as this Wisconsin guy who could write British. So that has led to some some interesting things in my career. Uh, but at the time, it was just it was just kind of a novelty. It was just kind of fun. And almost immediately, the script was optioned by a, uh, a producer who who uh, actually a British producer. She she found the script uh, really fun and charming, which is exactly what I had hoped how I had hoped it would it would strike people. Uh, I actually, when I was writing the script, I was very, very, very deliberately mimicking the style of Bill Forsyth, who wrote and directed my favorite movie called Local Hero. 
And I was very delighted that when Jonathan started sending Doug and Dave out to people, a lot of people came back and said, I love that you've, you know, that you've, you've taken on this uh, local hero kind of, a, kind of a vibe with this script. And it just tickled me to death that people recognized that I was writing in the style of this writer who I really admired. I guess you could take that as a criticism or a compliment. I took it as a compliment. So, so the script is almost immediately optioned by this British producer and then begins the slow process of trying to put financing together. She was an independent. She didn't have a contract anywhere. She had no, uh, you know, no financial backing um, or not a whole lot to speak of. But she was able to put together about, I, if I'm remembering right, she had put together financing, about 60% of the financing she thought she would have needed. And at the time, she was talking about a 12 to $15 million production to make Doug and Dave a, a motion picture. Well, she struggled and struggled, and she could never put the package together. But in the course of all this, she had shown the script to... Uh, a very famous actor and director, a guy named Bill Paxton. If you don't remember Bill Paxton from anything else, you may remember him from the movie Aliens, in which he utters the famous line, Game over, man! Game over! I, I can't do it anywhere near as well as he did, but that's, that's probably the single line of dialogue he's most famous for. But he did a lot of stuff. He was in Twister. He was in uh, Apollo 13. He had a very long and just distinguished career. And it just so happened that about the time we were shopping around Doug and Dave, uh, Bill was actually working on, he was directing a movie for Disney. So after this original producer sort of bowed out because she wasn't able to put the funding together, I sort of, you know, put it aside, started working on, on my next script and just sort of, just sort of, uh, you know, tried to make myself forget <laughs> that, that, that Doug and Dave ever seemed to be close to being made. But then several months later, out of the blue, I was working at a publishing company. That was my day job. That was how I was putting food on the table. And I'm, I'm working in my little office cubicle. I didn't even have a real office. I just had a stupid cubicle. And the phone rings, and it's a number I don't recognize. And I answer, and I hear this familiar voice say, Mark, it's Bill Paxton. How the hell are you? <laughs> and I was like, what? Bill, what? And he kept, he kept talking, and he said, listen. I'm making a movie for Disney. My stock is really high with Disney right now. They're going to let me do whatever I want for my follow-up. And I want my follow-up to be Doug and Dave. He's like, I love this script, man. I love your script, and I really want this to be my next movie. Well, it took a while for me to recover from, from that phone call. It was so surreal and so exciting. And uh, Bill was serious for the next uh, probably four or five months, maybe longer. Uh, Bill would give me a call periodically every couple of weeks and update me on his progress with his current movie and talk a little bit about you know, some of the, the pre-planning he was doing for Doug and Dave. He was thinking about set design and, and music and all sorts of things for Doug and Dave while he was wrapping up his first Disney movie. Now, about that first movie, it was something called The Greatest Game Ever Played. It was based on a true story about a young golf caddy 
who ends up winning this major championship, uh, playing golf against all the best golfers in the world. Didn't do anything for me. I couldn't care less about golf, um, and I couldn't care less about golf movies. But hey, if this golf movie helped get Doug and Dave made, I was all for it. So the the movie uh, is released. It was called The Greatest Game Ever Played. And if you're a golf uh, fan, I'm sure you'll enjoy the hell out of it. I did not. But like I said, if it helped me out, that was fine. So The Greatest Game Ever Played uh, opens in theaters. It's starring uh, a young actor playing this young golf caddy, a young actor named Shia LaBeouf, who you may recognize from lots of things he's done. But at the time, nobody knew who Shia LaBeouf was because he was starring in a Disney Channel kids show called Even Steven or something. So Shia LaBeouf's only fans were little kids, you know, 12 12 to 14-year-olds, tweeners. And the movie opened, and in its opening weekend, it grossed like $4 million, which is just disastrous. Absolute worst opening weekend you could imagine. Well, Bill was pretty heartbroken by that, and he was also kind of pissed because, from his point of view, Disney had botched the marketing for The Greatest Game Ever Played because they had been, uh, they had been showing commercials for it on uh, the Disney Channel. They were, they were targeting tweeners to go see a movie because it had Shia LaBeouf in it, Never thinking that tweeners, there aren't many tweeners that interested in golf who want to watch a movie about golf, even if it does have Shia LaBeouf in it. So Bill was actually interviewed after the movie came out. Uh, I never saw this interview, um, but I, I, I remember hearing about it at the time that he had gone on this interview after the movie had opened and, the, the, on, and these interviewers on ESPN who were interviewing him, you know, they were asking him, well, you know what? They wanted to know all about the movie and why he thought the movie underperformed. And, and I guess while he was on ESPN, he badmouthed Disney's marketing department by complaining that they had been marketing it to the wrong people. He said they should have been showing commercials right here on ESPN, not on the Disney Channel. So he was very critical of Disney, and Disney said, you know what, Bill, that second movie you want to do, forget about it. Not going to happen. Well, that second movie, of course, was my script. Doug and Dave. I'll just sidetrack here a little bit, though, to tell you why Bill loved my script so much, because I I thought this was kind of cool. So Doug and Dave, the real Doug and Dave, were landscape artists. And this is why they became so enamored with the art of creating crop circles. So they, they were artists, and the crop circle creation became a new way for them to express their artistic sensibilities. Well, it turned out, Bill told me once, that um, his dad had been an avid art collector. So he said there were always artists around our house. You know, my parents' friends were all artists, and, you know, they would, they would have dinner with us, and we would all talk art. And he said, I just loved the fact that these two characters in your script were doing this because, of, because it was art to them, because it was this, you know, it, it, was, it was more than just a prank. It was far more than just a prank. It, it was something that really expressed something much deeper uh, about these two guys. So that's why he liked the script. And I thought that was a pretty, pretty awesome reason for wanting to produce, uh, to fronting to produce and direct Doug and Dave. 
So that's the backstory on my script, Doug and Dave. The funny thing is, so now this is like the early 2000s when I'm dealing with uh, with Bill Paxton. Of course, he went on to do some great things. He went on to star in the HBO series Big Love. He uh, he directed another movie, actually, prior to the golf movie, um, uh, sort of a, a really interesting psychological thriller uh, called Frailty. So Bill, you know, Bill had a great career. He had nothing, nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, in fact, one time, one time I was in California and I met him on the, uh, he invited me to come visit him on the uh, set of Big Love. So of course I jumped at that chance and I get to the studio. It was, it was way, way north of LA and a fascinating set because you go into this gigantic airplane hangar and so in the series Big Love, Bill is a Mormon who's married to three different wives, and each of the wives has her own home, and the homes are all right next to each other on the same street. They built, they literally built three gigantic homes inside this airplane hangar <laughs> on the same simulated block on the movie set. It was an incredibly impressive set just to walk through these three houses and see how they did all the all the all the camera work it was quite amazing but so so we're walking through the parking lot and bill points out this car to me and he's go hey what do you think of my new car so i look over at the car and it's this big black behemoth it's the biggest lexus they made at the time back in the late 1990s early 2000s so it turns out he had bought it used which i thought was kind of cool i'm like you're this big star you could afford to buy any car you want and you're buying a used lexus that's really interesting but then he said something that i just just endeared him to me he just said i don't know it kind of seems like it's a bit much do you think it's too much and i thought wow not only is this big movie star buying a used car but he's worried that his used car is too ostentatious that just really charmed me, and I just loved him to death from that moment on. Unfortunately, as we all know, Bill passed away a couple of years ago. It was very tragic circumstances. He was undergoing open-heart surgery and, and uh, died on the operating table. I don't, I don't know all the details, but it was, it was a, a very sad story and horrible to see him, to see him go, in such, especially in such a just completely unnecessary way. Anyway, so here I am with this script, Doug and Dave, and the weird thing about Doug and Dave is, so now it's been over 20 years since I wrote it, this is the script, Mike, I was just joking with my kids about it yesterday, Doug and Dave is the script that never dies. For the 20-some years since I have written it, it has been read and optioned and put in development, and people ask for this script every couple of months Somebody will come out of the woodwork and approach me and say, Hey, Mark, do you still have that script, Doug and Dave? What's going on with that? It's, I mean, and so far nothing has happened. It's never, it's never been produced, obviously. But every couple of months, somebody shows some interest. And what this story is all leading up to is that two days ago, within days of the New York Times running this story about Doug and Dave, one of the agents I'm talking with requested to read Doug and Dave based on the pitch that I just read earlier. So right now, Doug and Dave is actually being read by an agent for the first time in several years. But like I said, this happens every couple of years. Somebody hears about the script, they hear me talking about the script, they remember having read it years ago, 
and they want to know if there's something they could do with it. But now it seems the race is on because, according to this New York Times story, so this dude has written a novelization of Doug and Dave, as I've mentioned earlier. And if I don't act fast, somebody's probably going to snatch up the film rights to this guy's novel, and then my script, Doug and Dave, will be out in the cold once again. So i got to do whatever the hell I can to make sure that Doug and Dave get some exposure. So if this agent ends up liking it and wanting to represent me for this, I'm going to say, man, green light, green light. Get that script out to as many people as you possibly can before anything happens with this book. Because I don't want my script to be jeopardized by this. So that's where we're at. And it's just a weird story. If it hadn't been for my brother Kevin mentioning this article he had just seen in the New York Times, I never would have known any of this was going on. And yeah, if you want to know about this guy's book, I have no obje- look, I, I have no objection if you read this guy's book. I've got nothing against this guy. His name is Benjamin Myers. The book is called The Perfect Golden Circle. And again, it was just published on this past May 17th. So, yeah, read the book, but believe in my script. I guess that's what I want to say. And wish me luck. I'm going to be doing everything I can in the next few days and next few weeks to see if I can get Doug and Dave out there and in front of people who might be interested in producing it as a movie. A side note on this is that Back when the script was, when Doug and Dave, the script was first uh, being shopped around to producers, one of these producers contacted my agent and said, hey, I want to talk to your British author. My agent went through the whole jokey thing with him. Ha ha ha. He's really from Wisconsin. But this producer was like, well, he obviously can write British. So I want to talk to him because I have an idea for, I have a story idea that takes place in the UK. And I think Mark would be the perfect writer for it. So I wrote that script a few years after Doug and Dave, and that script is now getting some attention now that I'm sending that out to agents. So it's kind of interesting how all these things sort of float in and out of your life, and sometimes they're a good thing, and sometimes they're a disappointment, but even when they're disappointments, sometimes they come back. Mostly I just get a kick out of the fact that the script for Doug and Dave never dies. And maybe uh, I do have some more Star Trek stuff to do in upcoming episodes of uh, Far-Fetched. But maybe I will do a dramatic reading of the script for Doug and Dave. That might be kind of fun. Anyway, that's all for this episode of Far-Fetched. I hope you enjoyed my story, and I hope you will be sending good energy my way to beat this guy's book into the film market. It's got to happen. It's got to happen. Thanks for listening. Hope you join us next time. Once again, this has been Mark O'Connell, and you have been listening to Far Fetched. Far Fetched.